Thank you for listening to this recording of one of the sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Milford, Connecticut. The sermon is one part of our public worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church, Milford. While much of the sermon has broad application, it is directed specifically to the congregation here in Milford and reflects our lives, needs, concerns, and context. We think it's important to note that the sermon follows many other aspects of worship, praise, singing, confession of sins and absolution, scripture reading, and sometimes a baptism or the reception of new members. It precedes prayers, confessions of faith, an offering, and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. All of these are integrated and ideally should not be separated. We're particularly concerned not to separate word and sacrament. By its nature, the sermon calls for a response, receiving the Lord's Supper with the accompanying prayers, reflections, and life of response and community. If you're not a part of Christ's presence, Milford, we hope the sermon is helpful to you and propels you to a full worship and engagement with Jesus' body in your own community. So we're coming near to the end of our walk through the Minor Prophets. We're a second time in Zechariah. It's one of the largest of the Minor Prophetic books. And we're in Zechariah 12 today, and Katie is going to read our scripture passage for us. Zechariah 12. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. When the, then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of, their, of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood like a flaming torch among the sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one be weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem shall be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimon and the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. 
On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the church that I worshipped in in college uh, was a fairly recent church plant. And for the first couple years that I was there, the pastor who had planted it was the pastor of the church. And during that time, he started feeling a call to the mission field. And so he and his family kind of went through the process of, you know, closing down the ministry, passing on the, the, the torch of leadership, if you will, and the church found a new pastor. Um, and then a few years later, he was passing through the area and was invited to come and kind of speak to us and just fill us in on what had been going on. And he stood up and he said, you know, I've, I've been spending some time back in kind of the, the place where I'd spent seminary and what had kind of become our, our chosen home before coming here. And he said, as I reflect on friends and relationships I have there and on things going on in my own family, I've come to the realization that we are really messed up. And he talked some about how when they had gone to go to the mission fields, um, our denomination has an assessment process for uh, preparing people, you know, just deciding, are, are you doing this for emotionally healthy reasons? Do you have the, the wherewithal to, to handle these things? And at times I think they can be a little bit over, um, overzealous in, in trying to protect against things, and his family had been turned down. And so this really messed up thing is that as he's looking at, like, why, why were we turned down, and how are we processing that, and what are the things that are going on in our family, uh, around this time, uh, one of his kids stopped identifying as a Christian as they began, you know, moving out on their own and doing their own thing and were leaving behind the faith they'd been raised in. And that was painful to he and his wife. And then they start wrestling with, like, what, is, what does this say about our lives? What does this say about where we are in our faith? And they begin wrestling through that. But they, they weren't trying to suggest that their family was a particularly messed up family or that they were particularly messed up people. His point was, we are all really messed up. We are all, as God's people, really messed up. There was a the, the town that they kind of called home is Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is the, a, a place where there's been a big impact of a, an approach to the gospel called sonship that focuses on how as the gospel becomes larger in our understanding, we become more and more aware of how broken we are and how much in need of the gospel we are. And really, it was, it was that concept that he's sharing with us, this we are really messed up. He's saying we need a big God. As the, the glory of God, the magnitude of God that we've been reflecting on in this service is revealed to us, it reveals to us we actually need a God like that to overcome the brokenness of people like us. Now, this passage of Zechariah is speaking into a context like that. Uh, we looked last week for context at the first three verses of Zechariah in the eighth month. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is going on after the exile. The people had had to go away and be in exile in Babylon for 70 years 
before they could begin to return and rebuild. And you might think about their, their process. Uh, true repentance had begun in that exile. You know, there was a lot of time during the exile spent with the prophet saying to the people, this is a temporary thing, don't worry about it. You know, it's false prophecy. And so the people had had to come to terms with the reality that God was saying, there's a problem in Israel that I'm addressing. Well, then they get to go back. And they have the blessing of the Persian king um, Cyrus. About to say his name like the, uh, the Harry Potter character Sirius, but no, Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus is wanting them to go back to rebuild their temple and to provide the protection necessary for them to do these things. And they get back to the land, and it's a struggle. And there's not strong government. And the other groups around them are trying to hold them back. And Cyrus dies, and the protection of the king goes away because the next king doesn't care as much. And so they're dealing with this, this isn't what we expected. This isn't how we thought it was going to go. We, we had a picture of how the return was going to work, and it didn't work like that. And what do we do now? And there's this part of the problem, what the, what the prophets are saying at this point isn't just your enemies are a problem to you, but also you're using your enemies as an excuse for, for giving up the goal, for losing sight of the prize. And so there's this depth of the messed upness, the need for Israel to get. This problem is really big. This problem includes our enemies and the pain and destruction of living in a place like this, but it also includes our easy willingness to sell out. And what a passage like this, uh, this is coming in the, the midst of a section of Zechariah that some, um, uh, some commentators refer to as the return of the king. Uh, that's why I used that particular analogy last week when we looked at Zechariah 9 and the king coming as a warrior who's going to rescue his people. But this passage brings together a couple of things uh, dealing with that imagery where the warrior is coming to rescue his people, and what's the result we see? Repentance. It's not the triumphalistic, like, okay, the, the, the warrior's scored for us now and we're on the upper hand, but rather he brings about Repentance. So as we're looking at this reality of what is Zechariah speaking into this situation with, we can take comfort in the fact that all of our pain, uh, the pain that is the result of our sin, the pain that is the result of other people sinning against us and creating pain for us, the pain that is the result of living in a broken world that produces pain, all of that is something that we can have comfort in the midst of because God will give us repentance by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray and we'll move into the passage. Lord Jesus, we pray for Your Spirit to open our eyes. I pray for Your Spirit to speak through me. I pray that as we come to Your Word as Your people, that You would make us aware of how messed up we are. But not just how messed up we are for the sake of feeling bad, but rather for the sake of knowing how great you are. We can only come at what your word says by your power. And so we pray that on this time now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just going to look at two parts of this. Uh, the way the passage is laid out, we see the Lord will give His people victory. 
and that's verses 1 through 9. But the result of the Lord giving His people victory is also that the Lord will give His people repentance in verses 10 and follow. So, looking at verses 1 through 9, we see the, um, the phrase, the tribes of Judah, or the people of Judah, and a contrast being thrown between Judah and Jerusalem. But the purpose of this contrast is mostly to say that there's an identity between them. Now, you might picture as the people have returned, and their, their purpose was to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but there's more than just the huddle of people that are able to gather in Jerusalem. They're going to need to fan out into the area around Jerusalem, Judah, and begin farming and begin doing the things that are necessary to build you know, an economy that's going to be capable of rebuilding a temple uh, and maintaining a city and defending themselves. Well, any time you have you know, the city and the rural area around it, there starts to be a certain tension. Um, in, in Illinois, the, the issue was that there was Chicago, which sort of dictated policy for the entire state, and then there were folks like us that lived five hours away from Chicago, and were kind of like, it feels like the laws that we have are geared towards the needs of Chicago, not towards us. Now, it was also the case that we were, you know, that, that Illinois was able to thrive to the extent that it did because it had Chicago there. So this isn't a, a one-way thing, but there's a, a tension that goes on there. And he's pushing against that tension. He's saying into the context of this tension where the people are probably going, you know, wait a minute, is, is, we're, we're in Judah. We're not like the dirty city of Jerusalem. Or maybe we're not as important as Jerusalem. And so prophecy that speaks to Jerusalem doesn't seem to speak to us. He's being very, very careful to set up. Just as in a negative sense, uh, the, the welfare of Jerusalem has an impact on its surrounding territory. If you look at the end of verse 2, the siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. Also, the positive things that he says for Jerusalem will be for the good of Judah. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone among the peoples. For the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God, and the clans of Judah shall see this and shall participate in it. And then they get swept up in verse 6. The clans of Judah, like a blazing pot in the midst of wood. Uh, the judgment that God the warrior, and if you'll think back to last week and the, the coming of the warrior in, in chapter 9 as the one who is fighting for his people, that gets expanded on for, ch for chapter 10 and chapter 11. And so we're seeing this application of God coming to protect his people and care for his people. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. Now, that doesn't seem to be setting up first before the nations. He seems to be mostly focusing on his rescuing of his people in the midst of the struggle that they're having and saying, it's all of the people. It's not just Jerusalem, it's Judah too. And on that day, I will seek to destroy the nations that come against Jerusalem. In the midst of their pain, God is speaking to them to say, I am the one who will rescue you. Now, I remember going on a camping trip with the family a number of years ago, and the kids were very, very small. And it was, you know, camping is a lot of fun, but is also a lot of work. And when you've got really, really small kids, uh, the way we worked out doing this was that Abby drove back and forth between the place that we were camping so that she and the twins who were babies and Hudson, who was very little, could sleep, you know, where, where kind of they had the stuff they needed. And Ellie and I stayed at the campsite. But that meant that Abby spent a lot of time in the car, uh, and that meant that I spent a lot of time trying to entertain a toddler who was, you know, ready to be up and making noise and we're trying to be quiet for the other campers. So we get back from what has been fun, but what has been a rather exhausting camping trip. 
uh, and I'm trying to park the boat. And if you've ever driven a vehicle with a trailer attached to it, it's not innate. And the previous summer, I'd gotten really good at parking the boat. And it was, you know, I could just drive in, back up, we're good to go. So I'm thinking I should be able to do the same thing now. And I'm not able to do the same thing now. And we're in the car for probably close to 20 minutes before Abby's kind of like, can we get out and, you know, maybe unpack some and you can just pull it over and not, you know, pull it out in front of the house and not worry about it, get some rest. Well, my problem is when something's not going well, instead of like backing up and getting over it, I have this innate urge to like just keep going at it till I get it. But by this point, I'm exhausted and can't figure out. So I, I let the family get out and we unload some of the stuff. And then I'm outside for probably another hour trying to get the boat where it needs to be, and it's not getting there. And uh, at about this time, I look back and I notice that the lights on the trailer that I've wired and rewired and come up with, you know, tried to, to get working properly aren't working. Now, it's not important that they be working right now. I'm parking it after all, but I spend a lot of time getting those lights wired. And I'm just kind of at the end of my rope and kind of doing this, like, you know, I can't park the boat, I can't wire things, I can't, you know, like everything I touch turns to, to dust, you know, what's the... And um, this song that we'd been playing for the kids, we had a CD playing for them, hits this point, we sang it a few years ago. Um, the chorus goes, you are in charge, you can do anything, you're beautiful. And it's talking to God. And in that moment where I'm just becoming overwhelmed with my own brokenness, essentially... I, I can't deal with this. Nothing I do works. I start hearing not, you're okay. You can do everything. But rather, God is okay. God is in charge. God can do anything. God is beautiful. And that repetition actually kind of broke through the morass that I'd built around myself. And I began to be able to let go and relax. And leave the boat parked in the wrong place in the driveway and walk inside and be like, you know, I am not defined by my inability to wire trailer lights. I'm not defined by my inability to park a trailer properly. I'm defined by Jesus, who is in charge and can do anything and is beautiful. And that's sort of the, the impact of these verses for God's people. It's not, I'm going to sweep away all your enemies and you can tap dance on their graves and so on and so forth. It's, I'm the one who's in charge and I can do anything, and I'm beautiful. And as my oppressed people, you can relax. You can place your identity in me. You can place your source of being in me, and that is enough. Now, the second thing that happens as a result of that, though, again, it's not tap dancing on the enemy's grave. It's not being puffed up. The response that God's people have is a response of repentance. And look at how that comes. Good verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Now, there's a connection to the way that the Spirit gets talked about in the Old Testament. Uh, there's a difference here in that he's referring to this as a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. It's not necessarily that he's imbuing it with, you know, my spirit or personhood, and yet... That's alluded to. Uh, in Joel chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 28. We read, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. Now, there's a specific claiming of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. 
and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, there's a similarity, though, in what's happening here when the spirit of grace and pleas of mercy are poured out on God's people. There's a connection, too, looking to the New Testament. What does the New Testament do with discussion of the Spirit in the Old Testament? Uh, Peter, standing up after the apostles have received the Spirit, makes this statement. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter connects this directly to what Joel is saying in chapter 2 of Joel, but look at the deep similarity to what is happening, and I'm not uh, saying that Peter's wrong, I'm saying that Peter is, of course, right in applying Joel chapter 2 but that here in Zechariah 12, we are also seeing a prophecy of what goes on in Acts 2. Peter speaks to them about Jesus' victory, Jesus' defeat of the real enemy, death, sin. And the result of this Jewish audience, it's a multinational Jewish audience, but it's a Jewish audience in front of him, is repentance. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? And Peter's response is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now look at what is being predicted here in Zechariah 12. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Now that word pierced, it's a word that occurs mostly to, to demonstrate like stabbing to death with a sword or with a spear. It's the idea of the person being killed. And the speaker throughout has been God speaking to his people. And God is saying to them here, he's going to pour out this spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, and they will look on him whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning in Hadad Raman in the plains of Megiddo. Now, probably what's being described here is a reference to the death of Josiah. Josiah was Judah's last good king in this long run-up to the Babylonian captivity where we're seeing just worse and worse kings, you know, failing to be the, the head of righteousness in the midst of the people. Josiah is a bright spot. And Josiah is so committed that he actually takes on Pharaoh when Pharaoh tries to march through. He's so committed to the holiness of God that when Pharaoh, one of the superpowers of the world, tries to march through Judah, he comes out to try and stop him. And he's killed on the plains of Megiddo. And he's taken to a nearby village, probably Hadad Rahman. And the people are mourning and weeping the death of a king that is unlike any king in living memory because he was a good king. He was actually a king that was for his people, that cared for his people, that used his position in order to be for the people, not in order to take advantage of the people so that he could get more out of them like the long line of kings that preceded him had done. 
And so the people are weeping and mourning for Him. And there's that sort of repentance being predicted here, a repentance as for a good king. It goes on, the land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself. Now, what I think we see going on here is we're, we're, we're seeing the house of David and the house of Levi. So this is the king and the priest. And I don't think we're talking about offices of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. I think we're talking rather about the two largest and most significant structures in Israelite society, the kingship and the priesthood, and the, the human faces of those two structures that order and govern and dictate all of life in Israel, the king and the priest, the, the human face of that, they are mourning. And we're taking the two biggest names in either of those structures, David and Levi, but then we also have these, the house of Nathan and the family of the Shemites. Well, Nathan is one of David's sons, but he's a lesser son. He's sort of an insignificant son. Uh, the Shemites are sons of, you know, one of the sons of Levi was Shem, and that led to this group called the Shemites. But I think what this is talking to is the pervasiveness of this repentance. The two biggest structures, the two orienting structures of Israelite society, from the most important leading figures to the sort of insignificant, you can forget them figures, all the way across, people are repenting and mourning. And this insistence on the by themselves, I think that's rather than trying to make this hyper-individualistic or hyper-lonely, it's pointing out, again, the pervasiveness of this, that it's not just the leader of the house is mourning for the household and the household is sort of mourning under his headship, but rather, individually, people actually have conviction of their sin and are repenting in this society-wide pervasive sense from the highest people to the least significant people. Repentance becomes characteristic of the entire society flows across the entire society. And so as God gives the victory to His people, He also gives repentance to them universally. Now, as Protestants, uh, we look back to an event when Luther, uh, Martin Luther kicked off the Reformation by nailing 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. And if you read through the 95 Theses, he's, he's trying to bring up some questions he has about the way the church is practicing its faith in, in the Middle Ages, and he's saying, I have problems. And if we read through the 95 Theses, he's mostly just raising discussion points. And there's a lot of his discussion points that we would end up saying, that's not really in conformity to Scripture. And there are positions that he kind of did some reflection on and said, yep, that's not in conformity to Scripture, we're going to move forward. But the first of the 95 Theses, and by its placement, you might think one of the more important of the 95 Theses, is this statement, and it's one that we'd hang on to still. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, if God will give His people repentance, this sort of medieval concept of repentance where we were just trying to quantify sin so that I could go do the things I needed to in order to, to get away from those individual sins and the impact of those individual sins, it's not a big enough understanding of sin. It's, a, it's an understanding of sin that you can have a little God to deal with. But we've been reflecting throughout our service on the significance of the transfiguration, that God is a glorious God, God is a magnificent God, and that God Himself had to come into the world and become human 
in order to deal with our sin. That means that there's a different mindset of repentance. It's not, I did something I should feel bad about. Okay, I'm going to go feel ashamed for a little bit. Okay, now I can feel better again. It's rather that the life of the believer is a life of repentance, a life of moving away from the ongoing reality about myself. Uh, The fact that as a believer, until I die, I'm going to come to be more and more aware of my sin. Now, I will see sanctifying growth. I'll start realizing like, hey, not just cheating on my spouse is bad, but being mean to my spouse is bad. Not just stealing things is bad, but being wanting things that don't belong to me because I don't think that the things that I have are sufficient or enough. Is I'll, I'll become over time more and more aware of the depth of my sin. And I'll be granted more and more repentance. And actually in that repentance, there's more and more freedom. I don't have to maintain this narrative that always makes me the good guy that always makes me the person that other people can look to. I can rather acknowledge and admit my own brokenness and not be stuck telling myself a lie and trying to maintain a lie around me. That's comforting because it's not on us to provide the, the value. It's not on us to provide the, the meaning in I can, I can have a, a sufficient identity because I know these things about myself. It's rather, I know these things about God. And as I continue to betray the things that should be true about myself and that I continue to see not being true about myself, I can draw further and further into God who is all things. We can take comfort in that. We can apply that relationally. A few weeks ago, I cited Proverbs 21 and 25 where it says it's better to live on the corner of a roof than with a contentious woman. And I pointed out to us that we hear that and we think that this is saying, you know, be very careful about who you marry and make careful choices. Uh, but that in context, this is a, uh, a society that practiced arranged marriages. You don't really get a say in who you marry. And so the point being made by the, the author, by Solomon, is not choose your spouse carefully, but rather when you see problems in your spouse, you can affect you. You can't affect your spouse. You can repent in you. You can begin making the changes in you that bring out a different response in the other person. Now, he's applying this to the spouse, but this applies in all of our relationships. In our relationship with ourself, where that narrative that I have to tell myself that I'm always okay, I can rather repent and have a different way of leaning into the world and the way that as I get to know my neighbor get to know my family member that's not a believer and I'm seeking to see the gospel transform them, as I repent, as I become what a a counselor once called the the least anxious person in the room, I can become a, a presence to them that is actually pointing them to Jesus. As we struggle with different things, you know, we're anxiety, uh, mental unhealth, pain, we have this need to separate ourselves from those things. And we, we know from Job, pain, mental unhealth, etc., those things aren't God judging individuals for their sin. Those are the results of living in a broken world. And yet in our sin, we start trying to set up ourselves so that we can say, like, either I'm going to fix the problem and make it right, or is God who God says He is? Because how can the world be like this? 
And yet, God being the one who both rescues His people and gives them repentance, gives us the ability to live in light of that future when God makes all things new and still live with a present that doesn't look like that. And in that present, have the repentance to be able to live in light of the brokenness that I experience in myself without having to be defensive about it, without having to make sure that as I encounter brokenness in other people, I don't have to build a sharp wall between it so that I can be good about myself, feel good about myself. I can repent because God is the one that gives repentance. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, give us the comfort of your word that not only are you in charge, that you can do anything, that you're beautiful, but also that we are really messed up. And it's okay that we can't fix that ourselves because you are going to fix that both at the, the physical level of, of what we are in glory, but also the, at the emotional level now, a living in light of the realities of brokenness around us and brokenness in us, and being able to repent and look forward to your victory, not so we can say, see, I told you so to our enemies, but so that we can see our enemies converted, brought into your presence. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.